0: Chapter Four of Aunt Jane's Nieces in Society. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lynn Thompson. Aunt Jane's Nieces in Society by L. Frank Baum. Chapter Four The Three Nieces. The Vontaires did not affect motor-cars. In some circles the carriage and pair is still considered the more aristocratic mode of conveyance. Established customs do not readily give way to fads and freaks. Consulting her memoranda as she rode along, in her handsome, tastefully appointed equipage, Diana found that Louise Merrick, one of the three girls she had set out to discover, was the nearest on her route, Presently, she rang the bell at the Merrick residence, an eminently respectable dwelling, in a desirable neighbourhood. Diana could not resist a sigh of relief as her observant glance noticed this detail. A dignified butler ushered her into a reception room and departed with her card. It was now that the visitor's nose took up an upward tendency as she critically examined her surroundings. The furnishings were abominable, a mixture of distressingly new articles with those evidently procured from dealers in antiquities. Money had been lavished here, but good taste was absent. To understand this, for Miss Von gauged the condition truly, it is necessary to know something of Mrs. Martha Merrick. This lady, the relic of John Merrick's only brother, was endowed with a mediocre mind and a towering ambition. When left a widow with an only daughter, she had schemed and contrived in endless ways to maintain an appearance of competency on a meagre income. Finally, she divided her capital, derived from her husband's life insurance, into three equal parts, which she determined to squander in three years in an attempt to hoodwink the world with the belief that she was wealthy before the three years were ended her daughter louise would be twenty and by that time she must have secured a rich party and been safely married in return for this sacrifice the girl was to see that her mother was made comfortable thereafter this worldly and foolish design was confided to louise when she was only seventeen and her unformed mind easily absorbed her mother's silly ambition it was a pity For Louise Merrick possessed a nature sweet and lovable, as well as instinctively refined, a nature derived from her dead father, and with little true sympathy with Mrs. Merrick's unscrupulous schemes. But at that age a girl is easily influenced, so it is little wonder that under such tuition Louise became calculating, sly, and deceitful, to a most deplorable degree such acquired traits bade fair in the end to defeat mrs merrick's carefully planned coup for the daughter had a premature love affair with a youth outside the pale of eligibility louise ignored the fact that he had been disinherited by his father and in her reckless infatuation would have sacrificed her mother without thought or remorse the dreadful finale had only been adverted by the advent of uncle john merrick who had changed the life plans of the widow and her heedless daughter and promptly saved the situation john merrick did not like his sister-in-law but he was charmed by his lovely niece and took her at once to his affectionate old heart he saw the faults of louise clearly but also appreciated her sweeter qualities under his skilful guidance she soon redeemed herself and regained control of her better nature the girl was not yet perfect by any means She was to an extent artificial and secretive, and her thoughtless flirtations were far from wise. But her two cousins and her uncle had come to know and understand her good points. They not only bore patiently with her volatile nature, but strove to influence her to demonstrate her inherent good qualities. In one way, her mother's calculating training had been most effective. Louise was not only a dainty, lovely maid to the eye, but her manners were gracious and winning and she had that admirable self-possession which quickly endears one even to casual acquaintances she did not impress more intimate friends as being wholly sincere yet there was nothing in her acts since that one escapade referred to that merited severe disapproval of course the brilliant idea of foisting her precious daughter upon the select society of the metropolis was original with mrs merrick Louise was well content with things as they were, but not so her mother. The rise from poverty to affluence, the removal of all cares and burdens from her mind, had merely fostered still greater ambitions. Uncle John's generosity had endowed each of his three nieces with an ample fortune. "'I want em to enjoy the good things of life while they're at an age to enjoy em, he said, "'for the older one gets, the fewer things are found to be enjoyable.' that's my experience anyhow he also told the girls frankly that they were to inherit jointly although not equally his entire fortune yet even this glowing prospect did not satisfy mrs merrick Since all her plans for Louise, from the very beginning, had been founded on personal selfishness, she now proposed to have her daughter gain admission to recognized fashionable society, in order that she might herself bask in the reflection of the glory so obtained, and take her place with the proud matrons who formed the keystone of such society. After carefully considering ways and means to gain her object, she had finally conceived the idea of utilizing Mr. Merrick. She well knew Uncle John could not consider one niece to the exclusion of the others, and had therefore used his influence to get all three girls properly introduced. Therefore her delight and excitement were intense when the butler brought up Diana's card, and she realized that the perfectly swell Miss Von Taer was seated in her reception room. She rushed to Louise, who, wholly innocent of any knowledge of the intrigue which had led to this climax, opened her blue eyes in astonishment and said with a gasp, "'Oh, mother, what shall I do?' "'Do? Why, go down and make yourself agreeable, of course. It's your chance, my dear, your great chance in life. Go, go. Don't, for heaven's sake, keep her waiting.' Louise went down. In her most affable and gracious way she approached the visitor and said, "'It is very nice of you to call upon me. I am so glad to meet Miss Von Diana, passing conversational nothings with the young girl, was pleased by her appearance and self-possession. This aspirant for social honours was fresh, fair, and attractive, with a flow of small talk at her tongue's end. Really, thought the fastidious visitor, this one, at least, will do me no discredit. If she is a fair sample of the others, we shall get along very nicely in this enterprise. To Louise she said, before going, I am to have an evening, the 19th, "'Will you assist me to receive? "'Now that we are acquainted, "'I wish to see more of you, my dear, "'and I predict we shall get along famously together. "'Help Miss Von Taer to receive? "'Such an honour had been undreamed of an hour ago.' "'But she held her natural agitation under good control, "'and only a round red spot upon each cheek "'betrayed her inward excitement, "'as she prettily accepted the invitation. "'Beneath their drooping lashes, "'Diana's sagacious eyes read the thoughts of the girl "'quite accurately.' Miss Taer enjoyed disconcerting anyone in any way, and Louise was so simple and unsophisticated that she promised to afford considerable amusement in the future. By the time Diana had finished her brief call, this singular creature had taken the measure of Louise Merrick in every detail, including her assumption of lightness and her various frivolities. She understood that in the girl were capabilities for good or for evil, and she might be led by a stronger will and musingly diana wondered who would lead her as for louise she was enraptured by her distinguished visitors condescension and patronage and her heart bounded at the thought of being admitted to the envied social cuttory in which diana von Terre shone a bright particular star the second name in the list of john merrick's nieces was that of elizabeth de graf she lived at a good private hotel located in an exclusive residence district It was true that Elizabeth, or Beth as she was more familiarly called, was not a permanent guest at this hotel. When in New York she was accustomed to live with one or the other of her cousins, who welcomed her eagerly. But just now her mother had journeyed from the old Ohio home to visit Beth, and the girl had no intention of inflicting her parent upon the other girls. Therefore she had taken rooms at the hotel temporarily, and the plan suited her mother excellently. For one thing, Mrs. de Graff could go home and tell the Cloverton gossips that she had stopped at the most fashionable hotel in New York. A second point was that she loved to feast with epicurean avidity upon the products of a clever chef, being one of those women who live to eat rather than eat to live. Mrs. de Graff was John Merrick's only surviving sister, but she differed as widely from the simple, kindly man in disposition as did her ingenious daughter from her in mental attainments. The father, Professor de Graf, was supposed to be a musical genius. Before Beth came into her money, through Uncle John, the professor taught the piano and singing. Now, however, the daughter allowed her parents a liberal income, and a self-engrossed musician devoted himself to composing oratorios and concertos, which no one but himself would ever play. To be quite frank, The girl cared little for her gross and selfish parents, and they in turn cared little for her beyond the value she afforded them in the way of dollars and cents. So she had not lived at home, where constant quarrels and bickerings nearly drove her frantic, since Uncle John had adopted her. In catering to this present whim of her mother, who longed to spend a few luxurious weeks in New York, Beth sacrificed more than might be imagined by one unacquainted with her sad family history whimsical major doyle often called uncle john's nieces the three graces but beth was by odds the beauty of them all splendid brown eyes added to an exquisite complexion almost faultless features and a superb carriage rendered this fair young girl distinguished in any throng fortunately she was as yet quite unspoiled being saved from vanity by a morbid consciousness of her inborn failings and a sincere loathing for the moral weakness that prevented her from correcting those faults. Judging Beth by the common standard of girls of her age, both failings and faults were more imaginary than real. Yet it was her characteristic to suspect and despise in herself such weaknesses as others would condone, or at least regard leniently. For here was a girl true and staunch, incapable of intrigue or deceit, frank and outspoken, all these qualities having been proven more than once everyone loved beth de graf save herself and at this stage of her development the influence of her cousins and of uncle john had conspired to make the supersensitive girl more tolerant of herself and less morbid than formerly i think beth knew of diana von taer for the latter's portrait frequently graced the society columns of the new york press and at times the three nieces in confidential mood would canvass Diana and her social exploits as they did the acts of other famous semi-public personages. But the girl had never dreamed of meeting such a celebrity, and Miss Von Teh's card filled her with curious wonder as to the errand that had brought her. The de Graaffes lived ensuite suite at the hotel, for Beth had determined to surround her sybaritic mother with attainable luxury. Since the child frequently reproached herself with feeling a distinct repulsion for the poor woman, "'so today, Diana was ushered into a pretty parlour "'where Beth stood calmly awaiting her. "'The two regarded one another in silence a moment, "'Mr. Graff's frank eyes covering the other "'with a comprehensive sweep, "'while Miss Taer's narrowed gaze, profoundly observant, "'studied the beautiful girl before her "'with that impenetrable half-hidden gleam "'that precluded any solution. "'Miss Fonter, I believe,' said Beth, "'quietly glancing at the card she held. "'Will you be seated?' Diana sank gracefully into a chair. The sinuous motion attracted Beth's attention and gave her a slight shiver. "'I'm so glad to meet you, my dear,' began the visitor in soft, purring accents. "'I have long promised myself the pleasure of a call, "'and in spite of many procrastinations at last have accomplished my ambition.' "'Beth resented the affectation of this prelude and slightly frowned. "'Diana was watching. She always watched.' "'Why should you wish to call upon me?' was the frank demand. "'Do not think me rude, please, "'but I am scarcely in a position to become a desirable acquaintance of Miss Von Taer. The tone was a trifle bitter, and Diana noted it. A subtle antagonism seemed springing up between them, and the more experienced girl scented in this danger to her plans. She must handle this young lady more cautiously than she had Louise Merrick.' "'Your position is unimpeachable, my dear,' was the sweet-toned response. "'You are John Merrick's niece.' Beth was really angry now. She scowled, and it spoiled her beauty. Diana took warning and began to think quickly. "'I refer to my social position, Miss Von Taer. "'Our family is honest enough, thank God, "'but it has never been accepted in what is termed select society.' Diana laughed a quiet, rippling laugh, as icy as a brook in November, but as near gaiety as she could at the moment accomplish. When she laughed this way, her eyes nearly closed and became inscrutable. Beth had a feeling of revulsion for her caller, but strove to shake it off. Miss Von Taer was nothing to her, could be nothing to her. "'Your uncle is a very wealthy man,' said Diana, with easy composure." He has made you an heiress, placing you in a class much sought after in these mercenary days. But aside from that, my dear, your personal accomplishments have not escaped notice, and gossip declares you to be a very fascinating young woman, as well as beautiful and good. I do not imagine society claims to be of divine origin, but were it so, no one is more qualified to grace it. The blandishments of this speech had less effect upon Beth than the evident desire to please. She began to feel she had been ungracious, and straightway adopted a more cordial tone. "'I'm sure you mean well, Miss Von Taer," she hastened to say, "'and I assure you I am not ungrateful. But it occurred to me we have nothing in common.' "'Oh, my dear, you wrong us both!' "'Do you know my uncle?' inquired Beth. "'He is a friend of my father, Mr. Hedrick Von Taer." Our family owes Mr. John Merrick much consideration, therefore I decided to seek pleasure in the acquaintance of his nieces. The words and tone seemed alike candid. Beth began to relent. She sat down for the first time, taking a chair opposite Diana. You see, she said artlessly, I have no personal inclination for society, which is doubtless so large a part of your own amusement. It seems to me artificial and insipid. "'Those who view from a distance the husk of a coconut "'have little idea of the milk within,' declared Diana softly. "'True,' answered Beth, "'but I've cracked coconuts and sometimes found the milk sour and tainted. "'The difference you observe in coconuts is to be found in various grades of society. "'These are not all insipid and artificial, I assure you.' "'They may be worse,' remarked Beth. "'I've heard strange tales of your orgies.' Diana was really amused. This girl was proving more interesting than the first niece she had interviewed. Unaccustomed to seeking acquaintances outside her own exclusive circle, and under such circumstances, these meetings were to her in the nature of an adventure. A creature of powerful likes and dislikes, she already hated Beth most heartily, but for that very reason she insisted on cultivating her further acquaintance you must not judge society by the mad pranks of a few of its members she responded in her most agreeable manner if we are not to set an example in decorum to the rest of the world we are surely unfitted to occupy the high place accorded us but you must see and decide for yourself i no indeed ah do not decide hastily my dear let me become your sponsor for a short time until you really discover what society is like then you may act upon more mature judgment. "'I do not understand you, Miss Fontaine. "'Then I will be more explicit. "'I am to receive a few friends at my home on the evening of the 19th. "'Will you be my guest?' "'Beth was puzzled how to answer. "'The thought crossed her mind that perhaps Uncle John would like her to be courteous to his friend's daughter, "'and that argument decided her. "'She accepted the invitation.' "'I want you to receive with me,' continued Diana, rising. "'In that way I shall be able to introduce you to my friends.' "'Beth wondered at this condescension, but consented to receive. "'She was annoyed to think how completely she had surrendered to the will of Miss Von Taer, for whom she had conceived the same aversion she had for a snake. "'She estimated Diana, society belle though she was, to be sly, calculating, and deceitful. "'Worse than all, she was decidedly clever, and therefore dangerous.' Nothing good could come of an acquaintance with her, Beth was sure. Yet she had pledged herself to meet her and her friends the 19th at a formal society function. How much Beth de Grave misjudged Diana von Tehr the future will determine. The interview had tired Diana. As she re-entered her carriage she was undecided whether to go home or hunt up the third niece. But Williams Square was not five minutes' drive from here, so she ordered the coachman to proceed there. "'I am positively out of my element in this affair,' she told herself, "'for it is more difficult to cultivate these inexperienced girls than I had thought. "'They are not exactly impossible, as I at first feared, "'but they are so wholly unconventional as to be somewhat embarrassing as protégés. Analyzing the two I have met, the majority, "'one strikes me as being transparently affected "'and the other a stubborn, attractive fool.' they are equally untrained in diplomacy and unable to cover their real feelings here am i practically dragging them into the limelight when it would be far better for themselves perhaps for me that they remained in oblivion oh well i call it an adventure let me hope some tangible plot will develop to compensate me for my trouble life seems deadly dull i need excitement is it to be furnished by john merrick's nieces i wonder Willing Square is a new district crowded with fashionable apartment houses, that is, they are called fashionable by their builders and owners, and accepted as such by the would-be fashionable occupants. Diana knew at least two good families resident in Willing Square, and although she smiled grimly at the rows of oppressively new and vulgar buildings, she still was not ashamed to have her equipage seen waiting there. Number 3708, Willing Square, is a very substantial and cosy-appearing apartment building, owned in fee by Miss Patricia Doyle. Diana was unaware of this fact, but rang the Doyle bell and ascended to the second floor. A maid received her with the announcement that Miss Doyle had just stepped out, but was somewhere in the building. Would the visitor care to wait a few minutes? Yes, Diana decided she would wait. She took a seat in the snug front parlour, and from her position noted a series of rooms that opened one into another throughout the suite, all richly but tastefully furnished in homely, unassuming manner. "'This is better,' she mused. "'There is no attempt at foolish display in this establishment, at any rate. "'I hope to find Miss Doyle a sensible, refined person. "'The name is Irish.' A door slammed somewhere down the line of rooms, and a high-pitched voice cried in excited tones— i found a baby hi there nunky dear i found a baby thereupon came the sound of a chair being pushed back as a man's voice answered in equal glee why patsy patsy it's the little rogue from upstairs here bobby come to your own old uncle he won't he belongs to me don't you bobby darling a babyish voice babbled merrily but the sounds were all goos and ahs without any resemblance to words "'Bobby may have imagined he was talking, but he was not very intelligible. "'See here, Patsy Doyle, you give me that baby,' cried the man, pleadingly. "'I've found him myself, and he's mine. "'I've dragged him here all the way from his home upstairs, "'and don't you dare lay a finger on him, Uncle John. "'Fair play, Patsy. "'Bobby's my chum, and—' "'Well, I'll let you have half of him, Nunky. "'Down on your hands and knees, sir, and be a horse. "'That's it.' Now, Bobby, straddle Uncle John and drive him by his necktie. Here it is, steady, Uncle. And neigh, neigh like a horse. How does a horse neigh, Patsy? Asked a muffled voice, choking and chuckling at the same time. Neigh, <coughs> hee Uncle John tried to neigh and made a sorry mess of it, although Bobby shrieked with delight. Then came a sudden hush diana caught the maid's voice perhaps announcing the presence of a visitor for patsy cried in subdued accents goodness me mary why didn't you say so listen uncle john let go that ear bobby let go you watch the baby uncle john and don't let anything happen to him i've got a caller." diana smiled a bit scornfully and then composed her features as a young girl bustled into the room and came towards her with frank cordiality indicated in the wide smile and outstretched hand. "'Pardon my keeping you waiting,' said Patsy, dropping into a chair opposite her visitor. Uncle John and I were romping with the baby from upstairs. "'Bobby's such a dear. I didn't quite catch the name Mary gave me and forgot to look at your card. "'I am Miss Von Taer, "'Not Diana Von Taer, the Swell Society girl,' cried Patsy eagerly. Diana couldn't remember when she had been so completely nonplussed before. After an involuntary gasp, she answered quietly, "'I am Diana Von Taer. "'Well, I'm glad to meet you just the same,' said Patsy cheerfully. "'We outsiders are liable to look on society folk as we would on a cage of monkeys, because we're so very ignorant, you know, and the bars are really between us.' This frank disdain verged on rudeness, although the girl had no intention of being rude. "'Diana was annoyed in spite of her desire to be tolerant. "'Perhaps the bars are imaginary,' she rejoined carelessly. "'And it may be you've been looking at the side-show "'and not at the entertainment in the main tent. "'Will you admit that possibility, Miss Doyle?' "'Patsy laughed gleefully. "'I think you have me there, Miss Fontaine. "'And what do I know about society? "'Just nothing at all. "'It's out of my line entirely.' "'Perhaps it is,' was the slow response.' Society appeals to only those whose tastes seem to require it. Aren't we drawing distinctions? inquired Miss Doyle. Society at large is the main evidence of civilization, and all decent folk are members of it. Isn't that communism? asked Diana. Perhaps so. It's society at large. But certain classes have leagued together and excluded themselves from their fellows, admitting only of their own ilk. The people didn't put them on their pedestals. They put themselves there. Yet the people bow down and worship these social gods and seem glad to have them. The newspapers print their pictures and the color of their gowns and how they do their hair and what they eat and what they do. And the poor washwomen and shop girls and the like read these accounts more religiously than they do their Bibles. My maid Mary is a good girl, but she grabs the society sheet of the Sunday paper and reads it from top to bottom. "'I never look at it myself.' Diana's cheeks were burning. She naturally resented such ridicule, having been born to regard social distinction with awe and reverence. Inwardly resolving to make Miss Patricia Doyle regret the speech, she hid all annoyance under her admirable self-control and answered with smooth complacency, "'Your estimate of society, my dear Miss Doyle, is superficial.' "'Don't I know it, then?' exclaimed Patsy. Culture and breeding, similarity of tastes, and intellectual pursuits will always attract certain people and band them together in those cliques which are called social sets. They are not secret societies. They have no rules of exclusion. Congenial minds are ever welcome to their ranks. This is a natural coalition, in no way artificial. Can you not appreciate that, Miss Doyle? Yes, indeed, admitted Patsy promptly. You are quite right, and I'm just one of those stupid creatures who criticize the sun because there's a cloud before it. "'Probably there are all grades of society "'because there are all grades of people.' "'I thought you would agree with me when you understood,' "'murmured Diana, "'and her expression was so smug and satisfied "'that Patsy was seized with an irresistible spirit of mischief. "'And haven't I seen your own pictures in the Sunday papers?' "'She asked. "'Perhaps, if you robbed your maid of her pleasure.' "'And very pretty pictures they were, too. "'They showed culture and breeding all right.' and the latest style in gowns. Of course, those intellectual highbrows in your set didn't need an introduction to you. You were advertised as an example of ultra-fashionable perfection to spur the ambition of those lower down in the social scale. Perhaps it's a good thing. Are you trying to annoy me? demanded Diana, her eyes glaring under their curling lashes. Dear me, dear me, cried Patsy, distressed. See how saucy and impudent I've been, and I didn't mean a bit of it. "'Won't you forgive me, please, Miss Von Taer? "'There, we'll begin all over again, and I'll be on my good behaviour. "'I'm so very ignorant, you know.' "'Diana smiled at this. "'It would be folly to show resentment to such a childish creature.' "'Unfortunately,' she said, "'I have been unable to escape the vulgar publicity "'thrust upon me by the newspapers. "'The reporters are praying vultures, "'rapacious for sensation, and have small respect for anyone. "'I'm sure we discourage them as much as we can.' "'I used to weep with mortification "'when I found myself written up. "'Now, however, I have learned to bear "'such trials with fortitude, "'if not with resignation.' "'Forgive me,' said Patsy contritely. "'Somehow, I have a false idea of these things. "'If I knew you better, Miss Fontaine, "'you'd soon convert me to be an admirer of society. "'I'd like to do that, Miss Doyle, "'for you interest me. "'Will you return my call?' "'Indeed I will,' promised the girl readily.' "'I'm flattered that you called on me at all, Miss Fonterre, "'for you might easily have amused yourself better. "'You must be very busy with all the demands society makes on one. "'When shall I come? "'Make it some time off when we won't be disturbed.' "'Diana smiled at her eagerness. "'How nascient the poor little thing was. "'Your cousins, Miss Merrick and Mr. Graff, "'have consented to receive with me on the evening of the 19th. "'Will you not join us?' "'Louise and Beth?' cried Patsy, astounded. "'Isn't it nice of them? And may I count upon you also?' Patsy smiled dubiously into the other's face. "'Let me out of it,' she said. "'Can't you see I'm no butterfly?' Diana saw many things, having taken a shrewd account of the girl long before this. Miss Patricia Doyle was short and plump, with a round, merry face covered with freckles, hair indisputably red and a retrousse nose, Also she possessed a pair of wonderful blue eyes, eyes that danced and scintillated with joyous good humour, eyes so captivating that few ever looked beyond them or noted the plain face they glorified. But the critic admitted that the face was charmingly expressive, the sweet and sensitive mouth always in sympathy with the twinkling candid eyes. Life and energy radiated from her small person, which Miss Von Taer grudgingly conceded to possess unusual fascination. Here was a creature quite imperfect in detail, yet destined to allure and enchant whomsoever she might meet. All this was quite the reverse of Diana's own frigid personality. Patsy would make an excellent foil for her. "'As you please, my dear,' she said graciously. "'But do you not think it would amuse you to make your debut in society, unimpeachable society, and be properly introduced to the occupants of the pedestals as your cousins will be?' Patsy reflected. If Beth and Louise had determined to undertake this venture, why should she hold back? Moreover, she experienced a girlish and wholly natural curiosity to witness a fashionable gathering and size up the lions for herself. So she said, "'I'll come if you really want me, and I'll try my best to behave nicely. But I can't imagine why you have chosen to take us three girls under your wing, unless, with sudden intuition—' It's for Uncle John's sake. That was it at first, replied Diana, rising to go. But now that I've seen you, I'm delighted to have you on your own account. Come early, dear. We must be ready to receive our guests by nine. Nine o'clock, reflected Patsy, when her visitor had gone. Why, I'm often in bed by that time. End of chapter four.